0: Hello everyone I am that Williams guy here for yet another episode and joining us for his second visit today is Mr. Jerry McCown. How are you doing sir? Fine thank you. Uh, you can. How go are you by. doing? I'm doing outstanding because I'm getting to talk to you so it's a good night. <laughs> oh, okay
1: <laughs> oh, that's a good one.
0: Yeah so yeah. to the audience if you go back I'll Gosh, it's probably been three or four months since you were on the last time, and we got into a lot of great history, and we're going to continue with that because there's more to talk about. Uh, Mr. Sir, if you would give a brief introduction for people who haven't listened to that episode, then start off with the FBI Academy.
1: Okay. Uh, Name's Jerry McCown. I'm 41. I a certified officer in Arizona for 41 years. I've been a firearms instructor certified by the NRA in 1972. And I've been a firearm instructor at Gunsight since nineteen eighty five so i'm I am right now the senior range master at at Gunsight. I don't speak for gunsight on this on the podcast or anything like that. I can just tell you stories and things uh, that I either saw witnessed or was told about uh that happened around gunsight and and so forth so just this is history is uh Uh, I just wanted to get it down someplace, some of the history, so people have a little bit more understanding about everything that occurred for all the years that Gunsight was established since 1976. Yes, sir. Yeah,
0: and that's the thing is history. If you take history classes in college, they preach, go to the primary sources. Right. And and so (laughs) you're a primary source. And so let's get it all documented.
1: Okay. So I, I had a little outline after I talked to you last time, I decided, well, Here's a few things that people may be interested in. Um, sure. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, first talked about 1980 in the FBI Academy. I, I uh, got chosen to go to the FBI Academy about 1978. It takes a, it's a two-year process for background investigations, all of that, in order to go to the National Academy. And people may not understand that the National Academy is not the Cadet Academy. The FBI National Academy is a management course Uh at the academy but you still have to run jump and shoot and do all of those things so i was sent back in 1980 and i had been introduced to the weaver uh, stance so-called weaver stance at the time by giles and and ed stock who had been teaching classes to the agencies around the phoenix area since they had gone and were teaching at gunsight so i go back to the fbi academy and i'm teaching i'm i'm shooting with my left arm bent and so forth, and they're trying to change me around. And I'm like, OK, well, but I kept going back and they looked at my targets and said, well, you shoot pretty good. We'll, we'll leave you alone. You know, they, but they didn't want me shooting Weaver. This was before that uh, female FBI cadet sued them because they would not allow her to shoot Weaver. And she felt that she that she shot Weaver much better than she did their system. And they would they wouldn't let her and she failed the academy. So they sued the FBI and she won. So after that, the FBI kind of gave lip service to to Weaver, but they really didn't didn't do Weaver really justice. And like I said before, it's nothing but more than isometric pressure on the hands. It has nothing to do with where you're standing and things. So they can go back and listen to the other one because I went my 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 uh, rave about that. You can go back and take a look at that. I eventually shot a perfect score on their on their revolver course, which is 50 yard course shooting, left hand, right hand, and all that stuff, and got a got a medal from the FBI director and so forth. Uh, next, we talk about Ron McCarthy and Scotty Reese because I was I was lucky enough uh, teaching a 250 class, and Scotty and Ron were in the class, and so I'm and I knew all about all about Ron. Because I was the the uh, at the time I was the SWAT commander for for my city, and so I'm like, oh my God, I've got I've got Ron McCarthy in class, and I didn't know Scotty before, but then I I, I met Scotty at the same time. But it was a fantastic class, really, really, just fantastic people. So years later, I am at the uh, NTOA National Tactical Officers Association over in Albuquerque, and Ron happens to be the key speaker keynote speaker at the big dinner and he gets up and he says "My am Ron McCarthy LAPD SWAT um, and he taught me how to shoot and points at me at a, at a table there you talk about embarrassed you know but uh, it was a real honor for him to say that I didn't teach him how to shoot though I so uh, Ron, Ron already knew how to shoot but uh, he made me feel good anyway so I thought that was was something I'd like to throw in there because most of LAPD at the time of course went through Went through gunsite. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would. They would. It was a regular type thing. Them and all of the seals out of Coronado Island would normally get. They graduate buds, and they'd send them straight to gunsight first, and then they start sending them to other schools. And so we had a we had a lot of that going on during those years. It was a it was a it was a golden year for gunsight. That was in the late 80s and so forth.
0: Now, when you say LAPD, you're referring specifically to Metro Division guys, right? Right.
1: Right. But we, but we got some of the other guys in there, too. And when they went to, uh, to, the, night, to the Beretta, you know, because of the, the Olympics and so forth, uh, those guys could run that Beretta. That they, they really was good. They, watching them run that Beretta was was amazing. So I, I really enjoyed that. Next thing on the line was if you go to the sconce, down in the gun room, there's a drawing of Jeff, and he's facing a target. And there's got got an axe there, and this axe is halfway backwards. And so Jeff was telling me the story before that drawing. I ever saw that drawing. Jeff was telling me the story. He says, Yeah, we used to do exhibition for people. So we'd put an axe up there and we have two balloons. So what we would do is this was back when he used to shoot from the hip. They would they would draw and shoot from the hip. And so I get back there and I draw and bang and pop both balloons. He says, of course, I didn't hit the axe. What it was, we, we explained to the people that really looks neat, but what happens is whenever the projectile hits the steel behind it, that pops the balloons. He said, but this one time, this one time he's up there and he's ready and he goes bam! And he actually hit the axe and he said, I just kept my mouth shut on that one. It was, <laughs> that, was the, that was the only time he ever actually hit the hit the axe and uh, popped the balloon. So it was, I thought I thought that was something for For people that go down into the into the sconce uh, gun room, take a look for that drawing of of him shooting from the hip. It's uh, that's a story that he told me personally. So it was, I thought that was that would be interesting.
0: Well, think about it. If you had done that in front of a group, would you say anything? You just shut your your mouth.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because he actually did it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, take credit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So that was good. Uh, Next, um, the next thing on the list or go ahead i was gonna just ask about the next thing okay good the first things i learned from jeff teaching which we had not been taught before was jeff first of all i never we never had a roll of tape or anything on a range when when i was was working as range master until i went to gun sight, and so we had shoot a few rounds and go up and tape them, shoot a few rounds and so i'm going like well this is a really waste of time we're doing a whole lot of whole lot of taping and not a whole lot of shooting. And so Jeff explained to me, he says, what you want to do is you must keep the people mentally involved all the time. So that's why we shoot two relays. You shoot, come up, you shoot your relay and go down look at the target. You take the target. Now you've taped the target. You're wiping out all the bad stuff, wiping out all the good stuff. You're starting over again. Okay. I now have a good target. And I, I get to start over again. I can do the best that I can. So you keep them involved that way. Then they go behind the line. He says all correction goes happens behind the line. You, you're not correcting anything when you're up there jerking on the trigger. You're sending them back there loading magazines. And then the students should be thinking, okay, I did that really, really well. I'm going to reinforce that. Or oh, I did this, and I need to think about that. I need to I need to work on this a little bit better. So what he said was. We do two relays because they learn more because they get to they get time to think about what they did and how they can improve how they can do better. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, six to eight rounds usually. The only time we did twelve rounds was when we would do two plus twos shoot two reload shoot two, and we'd do that three times. That gave us twelve holes to tape. Other than that, it was six to eight rounds no more because he felt that the six to eight rounds will tell them what they're doing, what they need to improve or what they need to, to stick with that, that's working for them. So that's when tape appeared on, on, the, on my ranges at, at the academy also. Uh, then we started working on that, making them responsible for every single round that they fire. If you make them responsible for every single one, they're gonna keep mentally involved in the, in the situation.
0: Could you give an example of some of the drills that would have been run? Yeah, we did. six or eight and then
1: go tight? Yeah, one of the things we do now is we do the school, what they call the school drills, two, 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 all the way back to to whatever distance you're going back to. Uh, We never did that with Jeff. Jeff, you worked. If you need to work at the seven-yard line, you worked at the seven-yard line until it looked like you were getting getting there. The other thing with dry practice, yeah, gun sight at that time was 600 rounds for five and a half days. And if I was a, if I was a range master and I had a, a standard class and we went through all 600 rounds, I'm on the carpet in front of Jeff telling him why we shot so much because what he would do is he would introduce a technique. You did that technique dry over and over and over till it looked like the majority of the class had got the mechanics of the technique down. So they're learning the technique without having to now worry about controlling recoil, side alignment, all of that stuff, just the techniques itself, dry practice. So you do that over and over and over and over and over until it looked like everybody's looking well before he introduced the rest of the the situation. And we fired and still do two rounds a lot. And he told me the reason we do two rounds is the minimum number of rounds needed and the minimum amount of time needed to make the student control everything needed for multiple shots on on a target so by doing two shots you're saving time you're saving saving ammo and you're getting repetitions more repetitions rather than firing three four five six rounds and so forth and we're still doing a lot a lot of that at the basic level at the 250 level we're still doing lots of two 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 before we get to non-standard response when we start shooting multiple targets so uh, you know keeping them involved make them responsible dry practice a lot before you actually do the technique. So, and 600 rounds, you were tired because the mental aspects that you were going through all the time, doing all of the, all of the, uh, the, uh, dry practice and so forth, uh, kept you busy, but we, but the days were much shorter. We didn't start before nine o'clock and we usually quit between three 30 and four, uh, with an hour, a minimum of an hour and a half, uh, lunch break. But the students were expected to come in early, before the stu- before the instructors got there. The uh, the seven yard line was the hotline. They were expected to come in, go to the seven yard line, unload, do their drive practice until the instructors got there. When the instructors got there, then we'd get everything going. Then at, for lunchtime, they break for lunch usually about eleven thirty, and. That way they were expected to stay for another 10 minutes and do dry practice on whatever it is that we had introduced to to them, go to lunch, come back 10, 15 minutes early, do dry practice until the instructors got back onto the line again at, uh, you know, one o'clock or whenever it was that we were getting back together. And we left early in the afternoon because this is Arizona Mm -hmm. and Arizona is hot. Uh, Jeff didn't do many classes and, in December and January, that was mainly just rebuilding everything. Uh, we we do classes now twelve months out of the year, but uh, because of the heat and so forth, he knew that in the afternoon, first of all, they were tired from the morning activities, and in the afternoon, we tried not to introduce too many brand new things, but we had them do a lot of repetitions and work on things that we'd introduced during the day, and so they were they were beat by the time they got out at at three thirty or so. Uh, so it was. Shorter time, a lot less ammo. Uh, when, when he sold the ranch and the new people took over, the first thing they got was start, they were starting getting complaints. Well, I, I signed up for a shooting school. I ought to be shooting. And so that's why now we're, we're probably up closer to 1,200 rounds. I think 1,000 is what the 250 class runs right now is 1,000 yeah. rounds. Uh, and we, we accomplished the same thing. But we just use more ammo. We use a whole lot more time. So people are beat by the end of the day, it, they really are. So we have to, you know, we push them to failure, then make them happy again. You know, bring them in close, get them doing some, something that they can be successful at before you drive them to failure again. Uh, that type of thing, and that's that's another thing that Jeff would talk about. So uh, it was a very it was a very different school, but it wasn't the the school of today. It is more tiring, I think, for the students uh-huh. than what it what it probably needs to be. But that's what the students want. They yeah. do not want to to break early. They do not want to start late. They want to be out there and they want to be doing something. So, yeah. uh, the senior classes are a lot slower. <laughs> uh, I like I like the senior classes these days. Yeah, because we're it's a slower pace. Actually, yeah. very very much slower. It's a it's a good it's still a good pace, but it's it is slower. So it's yeah. uh, so it's I think we've done a a really good job of of moving the new stuff into the class because we actually teach more now than what we taught with Jeff's classes. Jeff's classes were, you know, these are the things we're going to teach, and, and we taught those very well. But we didn't encompass other things that we now teach. So it's uh, we got rid of the prone. Jeff couldn't understand why people could not shoot, you know, extreme groups from rollover prone. Cause it is, it's a, it is the most comfortable prone position you can get into. I tell those SWAT officers, you know, if you're in the inner perimeter and you have to have your gun out and you got to, got to be watching a door or something, you could go to sleep with in the rollover prone <laughs> and, and the gun doesn't move, you know, if you've got it right. So, but people just cause you're changing body dynamics, everything wow. else, they start holding the gun different. They're, they're looking at their sights different. So we were having a, heck of a time and Jeff never could get right. to the fact that we have changed a lot when we go down to the rollover prone. Yes, it's comfortable for you. It's comfortable for me. Uh can shoot extremely well from that position. But other people aren't looking at all the dynamics that you're that you're seeing when you go into rollover prone. So so we say rollover prone now for the 350 class. We don't do that in the 250 anymore. Right. Which I am glad of. Uh, I, I believe it
0: was Ken Campbell that said that uh as far as round count goes that other schools began using that as a negative thing against gun sites saying, well, they only shoot 600. We'll shoot a thousand in our class. If you come shoot with us. And then it began to be a battle of, well, we have to increase the round count because it's being used as negative. Yeah. And is that detrimental?
1: I think to a certain extent it can be, it can be, but yeah, but it's like, in the 1990s, in the early part of the 90s, we realized our clientele was changing. Yeah. In the 80s, we had mostly cops, military, uh, and citizen. And Jeff, Jeff held the citizen, the armed citizen up above the uh, cops in the military, even. He, that was what his whole school was about. Yeah. But we had lots and lots of cops and lots and lots of military and people like that. Well, in the early 90s, we started getting these complaints on the reviews is, I don't want to pick up brass being from our era, you know, without any money, you know, brass pickup was like, yes, you know, I, I want to pick <laughs> up the brass because that's, that's money in my pocket. But, uh, so that's when that started coming in. So our, our clientele started changing in the nineties. We started getting people in the nineties that didn't know who Jeff Cooper was. And that, that I was astounded with that. And, uh, when we get to the, the sale, uh, a little bit down the road, not much. We got, yeah, we got yeah, we're moving right along. We've got Friday evening, ranking of students. The, uh, the rating of students, that was, Jeff never really wanted to do it, as I said last time. He didn't want to do that because, and he would tell them, you know more about your, your abilities than I do or any of, my, any of my staff does. So whatever you think that you are, that's what you are. But, you know, so don't get hung up on the, on the ratings. We tried to do away with it, and the clientele wouldn't let us. They wanted to, they wanted to know what we thought of them. But what we would do when Jeff was there is on Friday night, you know, the classes were, classes were Monday through Friday. Then you came back Saturday morning and that's when you did your school drills, your El Presidente for score. And then you had to shoot off and then you went up to the Scots for lunch, went out for lunch, but for, for snacks of, of uh, Janelle's brownies and the, the iced tea and lemonade. So Friday night, invariably the class because it, it's a bonding experience that they would go through during that week, mm-hmm. that uh, Friday night, always, they're always inviting us to staff to, to dinner. So uh, some restaurant down in Prescott, and I can't tell you how many restaurants we got kicked out of several times, <laughs> uh, you know, disallowed to come back, you know, for a couple of months or something until we behaved ourselves. Cause when you get things like the seals and the Marines mm-hmm. together, and then you get them into into drinking on Friday night. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they do strange things. They do. Those people do. Uh, you only know, had one seal was chasing a frog out in the, one of the gardens there with a the fork. Uh, uh, things of that type. We just, uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of drinking. Uh, so Saturday morning, many times had a lot of people running off to the side to vomit in the middle of the, the school drills and then coming back up and, and finishing the school drills and things, lots of hangovers and things like that. So it was, it was probably better that that went away. Cause that was, mm-hmm. it was getting to the point that I'm going, I, I know I should uh, for the class, but boy, you know, keeping them keeping some mm-hmm. of them in line sometimes was, was rather difficult. So I was actually kind of glad to see the Saturday morning go away. Cause that did away with the Friday night, parties uh, down in Prescott and that was so we'd go up Friday in front of Jeff and he'd have a list of the students okay what about Bob oh yeah 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 Bob's in a uh, marksman okay uh what about what about Bill oh uh, yeah Bill's an M1 what he it's Friday he had his thumb underneath the safety on a 1911 and this was Friday and he should have learned that on Monday you know, so sometimes Jeff would go, no, 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 no. And he'd bump them down one. But a lot of the times he did that to see if we would stick up for the clients. I, and you could tell it, you know, because he would argue and argue. and then, OK, then he would he would relent, and he'd give them whatever it is that the staff thought that they should get. So it was just kind of an interesting Friday mm-hmm. afternoon uh, before you went and took a shower and get ready to go off to party uh, <laughs> type thing. So it was uh, but it was a it was. It's one of those things that you that you relish in the fact that that you got the experience that with Jeff talking about uh, how he evaluated people and things of that type. Um,
0: yeah, I know there was there was somebody that was putting forth this whole thing years ago that if you weren't tall and slender and shot a nineteen eleven that Cooper wouldn't let you have an expert rating. But uh, it turns out that that person never attended gun site that put yeah, out, all that information
1: that. because Jeff was was really. If he had somebody there with a what he called a clinking ticker, you know, the double action, single action autos, mm-hmm. and if they ran that thing well, he was impressed because they're working harder than everybody else on the line. And you know, the same thing right now, we get them in, in class. I tell him, I said, that person's working twice as hard as what you with your Glock are. And look, he's doing the same as you. Imagine what he could do with the Glock. So, but uh no, Jeff, Jeff liked the different weapons coming through because. Jeff to Gunsight was nothing but an Um, Mm R&D. He did like helping people. He did like teaching people. But the whole principle behind Gunsight for Jeff was research and development. The, you know, trying different things. And he would. He would try different things. We had a time period there where we were, we had to teach the revolvers that you came out. And as soon as your hands came together, your thumb went on top of the hammer. And then as you punch the gun out to the target, you would cock it. So you would see, shoot everything, single action. And we had to have them do that for the first two to three days before we'd finally release them, let them do whatever they normally do, shooting double action, whatever. And he did that for a couple of classes and realized that that really wasn't going to work. And so then he, then he tried, okay, let's try. You take the slack out as soon as, as soon as your hands come together and you start, you start going through so and you got right to the top of your stroke that's when the gun would go off and we'd have guns going off halfway through it just you know so he realized that that wouldn't work either so he he dumped that but he he really used gunsight for for research and development uh janelle janelle ran the school if it wasn't for janelle gunsight would not have would not have lasted uh through jeff because jeff had very little concept of money uh the only time he ever heard a voice raised between jeff and janelle was janelle comes to jeff and says jeff who's going to pay for this the school doesn't have the money are you going to pay for it because they had their they had their own money Both of them mm-hmm. both of them apparently and i know that jeff inherited money from his father who was a a, a bank president and, and did quite well apparently and Je- but janelle had her own money too um because janelle would talk about well i got a refund from whomever and jeff goes wow well, I I have that too. I wonder where, where mine is, you know, type thing. So that gave me an insight as to to that that they were well off without the school. So they didn't really need the school, but they wanted it to at least pay for itself. Yeah. And that's where the problem came in when he decided that he wanted gunsight to go past Jeff Cooper. So the first thing, of course, he did was go to his son-in-laws saying, Any of you interested in taking over the school and running the school? And they had no interest whatsoever. The one son in law uh that was an operations officer there for a while wanted absolutely nothing to do with the school and very little to do with Jeff. Uh, I think that working for Jeff was something that, that soured him, I think for the I think for the whole entire the rest of the relationship. Um, you know, and his, his wife Lindsay, she's just a, she's just a jewel. But uh no one none of the family wanted wanted to run the school so jeff was looking for okay i need to find someone to take over the school but at the same time what he didn't voice was and still let me run it type thing and that's exactly what happened so i I go down here and i talk about uh well let's talk about the the jeff's uh, initial shotgun you know originally jeff just did the 250 and 499 which was hand handgun Mm-hmm. And he decided the shotgun would be a viable weapon for, for people to use and thought that that would be a very good one to, to add to it. So he added the shotgun. And in order to come up with a program, the first person he came up with was, was Satterwhite. Satterwhite was an Olympic uh, shotgunner. Uh, you know, he won some, some medals at the Olympics and he lived in the area. So So he came out and Jeff and he were working together. And right away, Jeff found out that they're just bumping heads because, of course, if you're an Olympic uh, trap shooter, you are focused on the target and you are then you're pointing the gun and and hitting the targets. And Jeff's going, "No, no, no, you need sights." And Santa White's going, "No, no, no, you do not need sights." And so Jeff finally dumped him. Uh, then, with the help of of Clint Smith, they developed the the shotgun program, and so and it was an extremely good program at the time, and it still is, but but I think it was very, very different from any place else that was being taught. Then Jeff came up with the ghost ring sights on the shotgun. So people ask, well, why why do you call it ghost ring? Well, because it's a large aperture in the back. As soon as you cheek the shotgun, that rear sight kind of disappears. You know, if you do see it at all, it's just a ghost. Uh And and you're actually looking at the front sight. So the original ones, we had uh, the Williams Peep sight and you would take the peep out. You'd unscrew it, and that left a large hole, and that's what we use for the original the original ghost sight, uh, ghost uh, rear sight. Then Robbie Barkman from Robar fame, uh, he was the gunsmith. He developed an adjustable uh, rear sight, and then he introduced the ramp front sight. You know, a very big, like a pistol sight on the front, and those together, his his uh, ghost ring and that ramp front sight was was great. We could, we could smack hundred yard targets just all day long and just with no problem whatsoever. So that was the beginning of the, of the uh, ghost ring. And then Mossberg comes out with their 590 with a ghost ring already on it. And Jeff's like, yes, that's the way it should be. You know, so even to this day, I think the the 590 is just a fantastic shotgun. So, uh, so I thought that was was interesting that people to understand, uh, you know, because the reason that Jeff came up with the ghost ring is strictly from African guns, African guns looking for dangerous game, you have a very large rear sight and front sights because you got to get on that animal in a hurry, in order to put it down before it gets you. And so that's why I decided to put the ghost ring on the shotgun and see how that worked. And it was, as you know, it, it uh, worked great. So, so that was a development that came out of gun sight that I thought I, and I don't know of anyone else that was doing that, that at the time. Possibly there are, but, but I was introduced to it, to it, to it there. Um, My friend Shane
0: Gosa, who spent a lot of time at gun sight, uh, found a set of MMC ghost rings in a safe. And uh, I managed to get those from him. And I have those on 870 (laughs) now. (laughs) That's good. One of my um, more stubborn failings was I took that gun to gun sight with me as my backup shotgun. My primary that I took was an 870P that had, yeah, it came from the fact where the rifle sights on the barrel that I switched out to those Trijicon sights that look like pistol sights. Yep. And they are fantastic for speed with buckshot on close targets. The problem was with shooting those 70 and 100 yard steel targets at sight was is the front sight is wider than the target is. Yep. And I was wreaking havoc with myself making some of those hits. And I was stubborn in the fact that I didn't go to the truck and swap shotguns. I'm like, no, I got out of the truck with this shotgun, and this is what I'm going to shoot the test with. And I would have done better had I gone and gotten the gun that had the equipment that was designed for yeah. that test. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but you know, it just Good. aggravates me sometimes when I'm in a class and I see people want to run back and once they see the test. Yep go grab the tool that will do better on the test than with the hands. like no this is what I got out okay. of the truck with now if I go okay. back if I go back <laughs> out there and retake it
1: I'll, I'll take appropriate gear or m- okay. more suited gear okay good so that's that's the uh, ghost rings and so forth um, Clint Smith you know I, I think I talked, talked before Clint is his old man that's it mm-hmm. that's, that's in fact White had taken over, and you know, Clint, Clint worked for h and for years, and he would come around, and first, the first class I took from Clint was his MP5 class, because he had a, a van full of MP5s. I had my own, still do, but uh, uh, so I had. So I went up and took the, the MP5 class, and that's when I was introduced to Clint. I didn't know him at gun sight, I did know the scrambler and so forth that he designed, and talking to the other instructors up there, you know Clint is a very innovative, uh just just really a, a solid guy, just a, a just a down-to-earth solid guy. Uh, so I I really thought that that uh, Clint was fantastic. So I took every class I could from Clint and I brought him to Glendale. I would sponsor him uh every year to come down to Glendale. We'd we'd give him our police range and he ran his classes out there for uh for quite a few years i forget how many years but it's when he and deb his first wife uh were together uh and so it's before he she passed uh before he before he got uh um uh, thunder ranch in texas so i'm doing a shotgun class up at the site and i got this truck driver looking dude in the class kind of rough looking uh got bling around his neck he's got this big gold chain and a gold raven and a and a clear stone of some kind in the middle, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, so I look at his cap, and he's got, he's got a Clint Smith pin in it. I said, Oh, well, what have you done? In uh, with Clint? Oh, he'd done shotgun, he'd done handgun, he'd done rifle, he did carbine. I went, Oh, wow. Okay, so this is really good. So the next day, Wednesday, that was Tuesday, on Wednesday, he comes in and hands me a brochure. He says, you asked me what I do with Clint. So this is one of the things I do with Clint. And he handed me this brochure. I forget the name of the organization now that he developed. He put this thing together for Clint. What it was, was he lived down in Florida. And Clint would go down and teach in Florida. So he took one of Clint's classes, invited Clint over for dinner. And Clint tells me, Clint tells me this. He says, so this guy invites me to dinner and gives me his, his address. So Deb and I go, okay. So we got our t-shirts and t shirt t-shirts and levi's on and so we're driving down this road in florida and there's nothing around go like what the heck finally they come to this big gate and it's got the number on it that's the address that he's looking for he says so i drive into this road he says i think we i think we went almost a mile before we come to this big house and he said believe it or not a butler comes out and opens the door for deb so (laughs) he says you talk about feeling out of place so they're in this this mansion having dinner and and this guy says uh it's really great that police officers get this kind of training because this is so so valuable and Clint says well not really because police officers can't afford it they don't they don't put out the money for for these classes and so George says oh so George puts together a uh, a corporation, not a corporation, a company to do nothing more than to teach police officers. And so he what he did was he paid for 20 police officers to go to a week long class with Clint and the, the sergeant from Indiana, the defensive tactics. I forget his name now. Damn. But was uh, a sergeant up in I think it's Indiana. Uh, he was a defensive tactics uh, expert. And so what they would do, they'd go out and they would teach this class. You would spend a half a day either in the dojo or at the range and then switch for the afternoon. And so you got five days of both defensive tactics and firearms for this week. And and George paid for everything. He paid all tuition. You know, all you had to do is bring your gun, your, yourself and your ammo uh, type thing. And but I so he told me about this and i thought well that's really great so the following week i'm home the phone rings and it's clint clint says well mr matthews says that you're ready for a class and i'm trying to think of who the hell is mr matthews i remember george the truck driver (laughs) yeah so so uh i go okay great he says okay in order to put on this class you have to get 10 agencies involved they need to send two people each no more because he wants to make sure that the information is spread throughout the area. Mm-hmm. So 20 people total, two from each agency, and 10 people, and it's free. It is damn near impossible to give free classes to a police agency, yep. even though it is the absolute top-notch class you could ever have. And I'm telling you, I had to pull in, teeth to get the 20 people so we could have this class. It just, you talk about yep. frustrating. That was yep. frustrating. So yeah. that brings up, go ahead.
0: A couple of years ago, uh, we had someone sponsor a range master instructor class in South Dakota, free. All the tuition was paid for, it was supposed to be for South Dakota officers. We couldn't fill it up. And so they had to open it up to surrounding states, free range master. Somebody else was paying the bill. And it's like you were responsible for your own travel and your own ammo and stuff, but the tuition was paid. And we ended up with, with cops coming from Iowa and, and other places. Now I'm glad that it did because now one of my good friends in the shooting industry, Lane Thayer, was in that class and he's from Iowa. And that's where we met. And it was just astonishing that you, here it is, like one of the yeah. most foremost classes. <laughs> yeah. in, in the, and, and it's been that way too. I've had free slots in classes and had trouble yeah. giving them
1: away. It's 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 amazing. I could not believe it. I just, I just I beat myself my my head against the wall trying to. Mm-hmm. I fi- I finally had to call up some of the chiefs. Go chief, mm-hmm. this is it. This is world class training being paid by a billionaire that feels that police officers should have this top notch training. And I can't get two people from your agency. Oh oh well okay okay I'll I'll yeah. see about doing. I had to threaten them. Yeah. Just, it, was, it was just incredible. But anyway, that brings us up to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Jeff wants to sell. Wants to sell Gunsight. I uh, can't get a family member to to take it over. Can't can't find anybody really that he he really trusted. So the word goes out. You know, the scuttlebutt goes out in the industry that Gunsight is for sale. And so I got this from. There's a fellow. He and his wife, uh, Bill and, and Elizabeth uh, Adkins, that were very close to, to uh, Jeff and Janelle, and very close to the new owner of Gunsight, Rich G. And so he was involved a lot. And he used to call me all the time about things that are happening that he felt I needed to be aware of, type thing. So he calls me and says, Ah. Uh, Jeff got a phone call as George Matthews, you know, George, George was the, the fellow that owned all the property down uh-huh. in Texas where, where Thunder Ranch was. And so he, and this was, I think this was pre Thunder Ranch. This is just before he set uh, that uh, Clinton set up Thunder Ranch. So the phone call rings and Jeff answers it and it's Matthews and Matthews says, well, I understand gun sites for sale. And supposedly Jeff said, Uh, yeah. And Matthew says, how much? And Jeff says, $1 million. And George supposedly said, okay. So Jeff says, who will you bring in to run the school? And of course, Matthew said, Clint Smith. Then Jeff supposedly said, 2 million. And Matthew supposedly said, okay. Jeff said, I'll get back with you. And he never did. And he hung up the clap, the phone. And that's when he was looking, and and Rich G was an instructor. He was a, he was an instructor before. I was, In fact, he was a uh, he was the coach in my two hundred and fifty class. Uh, so I had Dennis Tuler as my RM, uh, um, Larry Larson, and and Rich G. And so Rich, a very nice, very polite uh, gentleman, uh, but he was kind of a yes man for Jeff. You know it's a, yeah he, he he would jeff would irritate him because he would tell me he says you know i really like jeff a lot and, and things but on monday morning i wish you would quit telling people remember pick up you know pick up your cigarette butts and you know put them in the trash we don't have coolies out here to pick those things up and, and things so uh, rich being chinese didn't like the the uh, coolie remark all the time so uh that was their relationship though was a it was a It became a business relationship because Rich G did not have the funds to live on uh, while he did the school for R&D. So when he bought the school, Rich told me he paid $650,000 for the school. That's what the agreement was, $650,000. He's going to pay Jeff uh, payments. But now Rich had to change the school from an R&D perspective to he had to make his own living. He had to be able to pay for instructors. So mm-hmm. he, he had to make it a, a profitable business. Yeah. And Jeff really didn't make it very profitable. So he started changing some things. So it went on for a couple of years. Uh, not too bad because Rich bent over backwards as much as he could. This thing started getting rough and started getting more and more, more rough. And uh, Jeff was getting a little loose with gun handling. I, I know I I've twice saw him muzzle two different classes of uh, so when uh, when G came out with, you know, we're you know, we're having this type of a problem, you know, kind of watch it very carefully and so forth. But then finally, the uh, complaints got to the point that he and, and Jeff went head to head. And he didn't want Jeff on the range anymore. Said, so, "Yeah, you can do the lecturing. I don't, don't want you on the range." And then Jeff finally just said, "You know, April of 1993, Jeff gave, wrote us all letters. Are you there? Well, it's still saying record, but you left anyway." So, uh, Jeff sent us letters saying, "I am no longer affiliated with Gunsight School, uh, and you can do as you as you please." So my my view of that was I wasn't there for the administration, even with Jeff. I was there mainly for the schools and to learn from Jeff at the same time for the for the students, for the clients, because um, the clients, the people that go to gun sites still well, just gun people. Gun people are just some of the nicest, friendliest uh, people in the world. So I told him that, well, I'm going I'm teaching a gun site for the clients, not necessarily for the administration. Yeah, if things get to the point that I feel that there's there's some ethical problems going on, I'm going to be gone. Uh, And we lost lots and lots of really good instructors. We really did. They were, he fired some instructors. If he felt that they weren't loyal for some reason, I don't know. I don't know why. I always went over to the sconce and talked to Jeff and Janelle whenever I could. But if you weren't, quote loyal than some of the instructors i think were, were dismissed i wasn't going up there all that much anyway so i didn't i didn't much care about it didn't uh, didn't impact me much at all but then in the late 90s uh things had gotten so bad apparently for what i got from other vendors and things was that they didn't trust gunsight they didn't trust gunsight to pay the bills and so forth so i figured okay this is this is probably it because it just uh wasn't going so what we did, uh, we stayed in there in the September of 1999, I believe it was. We heard that a fellow by the name of Buzz was was coming in and had contacted Jeff and said, Jeff, I'm interested in buying the school, but I want to know if you will come back and be a part of the school. And Jeff agreed. And so when he agreed, then uh, that's when Buzz went into the into purchasing the school. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was September of 99 because I was up there teaching and we were told that one of those nights that uh it had been done and that Buzz Mills and Jeff and Janelle were over at the sconce and they were celebrating with champagne that gunsight was going back to being gunsight. And so for all of us instructors, that was a that was a, a real jewel. That was that that made us happy. We were kind of wondering what's going to happen, but then immediately with Buzz coming in, dumping money into the school, fixing up things, it was it was night and day. It was it was incredible. It really was. So, um, you know, we had Bill Jeans. I really felt sorry for Bill Jeans because Bill Bill left uh, Clovis PD, in California. With the early retirement, which meant that he couldn't draw money. I think until he's fifty-five, and he came over for Jeff because Jeff was looking for an operations officer to run the school, and so he talked to Bill and promised him. Yeah, you, you know, he, Bill was able to buy one of the forty-acre lots there next to gun site to build a house on. Uh, Jeff did all kinds of things for him to to get him over here, and then short, well, not shortly, but at least. Uh, two, three years after that, after Bill had, had retired early, came over, built a house, and so forth, then Jeff sold it up from from under him, but Jeff, when he sold it, he figured he was still going to run the school i I know he did he he felt that with rich G being the yes man that he was, was that nothing would change except rich G would now have to pay people their salaries and and do everything else needed for the school and so when that didn't work out, that's when things went started go, started going bad, and then it went downhill from there. So when Jeff came back in to the school, I never taught with him again because he he taught what they called the master classes, and he had his his master instructors, um, and Ed Stock was 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 prime. Uh, Ed Stock, Ed Head, uh, those people were really close to to Jeff, and and that didn't bother me at all. I I just was glad to see that the school was still going, and so. Uh, you know, right up until, until Jeff's death, he was he was at least involved with the students and things, which I really was glad to see. Even at, even when his health was getting getting worse, so it was it was uh, it was a time for Jeff during the you know two thousand to two thousand six, where he could be the gentleman scholar and talk to people and and welcome them and so forth, which which is he really enjoyed doing. Are we still on?
0: yeah I, I was gonna say i am want to enjoy this episode because my power blipped off for part of that and i was frantically trying to get it turned back on and i came and you were still recording i was like well great okay i've got well, something I, to listen
1: to yeah well i looked up and it's still still blinking record so I, I thought well i don't know if we're still on the air or not but i'll just go ahead and continue so i yeah, went well, with all of that so that was so that was the sale of Gunsight to rich g and why why those 90s what we call the dark the dark years you know mm-hmm. you yeah, have Orange gun sight and the gray gun sight. Uh, risk G was colorblind, so he didn't care, and so he started painting everything gray. So it was orange gun sight and gray gun sight. Uh, And there's still a there's still a division there, and somewhat with people, Mm -hmm. which is is amazing to me because it's, you know, being around Jeff a lot, and it's just well, it's just amazing that that you still have that that kind of animal. I I went to go visit uh, Bowman and and uh, Uh, Herschel I drive up in front of Bowman's house I get out of the car and I have both Bowman and Herschel coming out the sidewalk going what the hell you doing still teaching there it's like I'm not there for Ritz G I'm there for the clients I mean that's Mm -hmm. you know why in the world wouldn't I be because I taught Jeff Cooper you know even though Jeff wasn't involved they knew who Jeff Cooper was. They knew what, what Jeff Cooper did and what mm-hmm. Cooper said about things. So when, you know, like double tap, you know, the, we do, we don't do double taps at gun sight. We do hammers because it, the term came over from England and one of the, the Brits were talking to Jeff and said, yeah, well, yeah, we do double taps. And Jeff says, well, you may do taps with a nine millimeter, but you do hammers with the 45. <laughs> so, so that's why we do hammers at gun sight instead of a, instead of double taps. So, uh, it got to Americanize it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a, and then of course, staff themselves did a lot for, uh, for, uh, between the, the, the battle of 45, to nine millimeters. You know, if we got somebody shot, shot the, the uh, target right on the tip of the nose, mm-hmm. we tell them, you know, Jeff says that if you hit them right on the tip of the nose like that, even with a nine millimeter, at least their eyes are and You can go hide. So <laughs> yeah, <you know, it's, laughs> you know, we call it uh, a three eighty Magnum. Nine millimeter was three D Magnum, forty five yeah. set on stuns for trekkies. Uh, you know, those are were not really things that Jeff would say, but but the staff would tell him that Jeff would say that. So it was <laughs> we, we had a lot of fun with it. You know,
0: it's funny how uh, I know some gunsite people from that era that will not say Richard G's name.
1: Well, yeah, I well, I posted a picture uh-huh. of my two fifty class uh, instructors, which had had Cooper, uh, Larry. And Dennis, and he who shall not be named, and so Larry Landers writes me back. Oh, well, that's Fritz G. I, goes, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah, but it's funny not Larry Landers. That. i, I'm I talking, Larry, Larry. Larson. I keep we have Larry Larson, Larry Landers. Every time we say Landers, they have to be Larry, Larry Larson. Oh, ah, yeah. yeah. He's gonna he's gonna get me on that again because I I originally put Larry uh, Larry Landers on there instead of Larson. But uh, yeah,
0: it's funny because I I will hear people refer to him as the "owned gun."
1: Well, we're still recording, but I've lost your your audio. Yeah, the other part of it of the, uh the the purchase of the gun site was that. That Morrison, Greg Morrison, the guy that, that wrote the, the modern technique of the pistol, which Jeff edited, uh, he originally was with Rich G. They were going to go together. together and, and, and and Greg, Greg. Uh, I understand, has has funds, which Rich G didn't. But Rich somehow cut him out of the deal, uh, which is really a shame because Greg Morrison was a very intelligent individual. And I doubt if we would have had anywhere near the problems that uh, Rich G had if Greg Morrison had been involved in that purchase because Greg was, was extremely intelligent and he, and he and, G, he and Jeff got along and he could, and he could talk to Jeff and, and get Jeff to, to go along with what things that he wanted. So I was, I was sad to see that, that that, that, didn't go through with, with Morrison. One of the calls I did get one time was I get a phone call from uh, Bill Adkins that he, he just said, Rich G fired Rick Fur and Bill Jeans. That shocked me because I knew that Bill was in in tight streets anyway. The fact that that he felt kind of like Jeff had kind of sold him out by selling the school. That all of a sudden he gets fired, and I'm hot. I hop in my car. I live 105 miles from Gunsight. I hop in my car, and I go to Gunsight, and uh, go into Rich G's office, and I said, "Well, I got a phone call that you fired." Bill Jeans and, and Rick Furr, because Rick, Rick Furr was the, he was another one that they talked into leaving where he was and moving to Gunsight as the full-time instructor. That was one of the times that we had a full-time instructor, which was, was uh, Rick Furr at the time. And I'm sorry, Jack Furr. Rick Furr is his brother, is, is his cousin. That's a police officer over in Scottsdale or was <laughs> over in Scottsdale. Now, so I kept getting Rick and Jack. So Jack, I was concerned with him too, because he moved his family over there. And then all of a sudden, boom, they have no job. They get fired. So I go into Rich and, and Rich says, no, I didn't fire them. What I told them was that for, for business purposes, I need to cut my salary, the, the, the salaries of the full-time people. So I'm doing away with their two positions, but they have first choice on any classes that they want to teach. If they want to teach all of them, they can teach. They can teach any of the classes they, they want and they get first pick." On any classes that they want, so I'm thinking, okay, that's different from firing and leaving them out in the cold. Uh-huh. So I get my car and I drive over to Bill's, and I said, "Well, I got a call that you got fired." He goes, "Yep." I said, "Well, I just talked to Rich, and this is what he said." Bill says, "Yeah, but you know, I no longer have a, you know, I can't do this, I can't do this, can't do this. so he he had lost a position, yes, uh, lost a, an office, but he could still teach." Uh, if nothing else. And so I'm like, okay, that, that puts me between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen them go ahead and continue as they were. But I also know that Rich G was having problems financially and that he needed to do something in order to reduce costs costs. So I left it at that. Mm. Well, then Bill, you know, a few months later, Bill called me up and said, my God, he says, Jerry, the best thing he could do to me was when he fired me because I went out on my own. I started contacting people I knew. They want me to come teach there. He says, I have been, I, in the last year, he says, I have worked half as much and made twice as much money by, by doing my own school, by traveling around the country. He said, I just, he says the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I was just, I was really, really glad to hear that really, really satisfied the fact that he had found himself and really he needed that to to push him over the edge in order to go out on his own and, and do what he always wanted to do anyway. And Bill's a, a great instructor. He's retired now, but uh, you know, he's a great instructor. When I, when I decided I was going to go to Ireland to, to study their, their police training, I of course thought of, thought of Bill. First I met Bill when I'd come back from England and I'd spent uh, about three nights in, uh, in London in a, a constable's building. Because over there, when you become a, a, a constable, at that time anyway, it was like being in the military. You were assigned housing. And so they would have a half block square, you know, of building that was all coppers in there. And so out across the street from that was always pubs. You know, so this was the first pub crawling that I'd ever done. So, uh, so I had been over there and I was staying with two constables. And one of them was from Ireland. And he had this tape, this cassette tape of Irish music, and he's playing it. We're all sitting around drinking and things and and uh, you know people are coming and going. it was you know it was it was like dorm time at the at the uh, uh, college or university, you know so but, but it's just all coppers. So he pops this tape out and gives it to me because I told him that's the great, greatest music i ever heard, And so I come over. And I come up and I'm talking to Jeff and Janelle. I said, yeah, I got this tape of Irish music. I don't know anything about it, but it's, it's, really, it's really some interesting music. They, Janelle looks at Jeff and goes, you need to hook him up with Bill Jeans. And sure enough, I hooked up with Bill. Bill told me the backgrounds on all these songs, what they meant, and just all of those things. So as soon as I decided I was going to go over and study over in Ireland, I called Bill. say, Bill. How would you like to go to Ireland? I said I'm going to go study the, the uh, teaching, the the uh, certification process for officers in Ireland, and I of course thought of you. He goes, okay, I'll get back with you. So I'm thinking, Bill and I. So he comes back and says, yep, we're in. Well, it's Bill, his wife, and his daughter, of course. So okay, so but it was a, it was a fantastic trip. It really was. They put us up. They put us up in the the uh, married. Uh, instructors quarters there at the the academy and things and uh we had, we had a great time in ireland it was it was a good time so that's that's bill jeans that's that's how i met him because of that irish music that i got from that that uh <laughs> british because i asked this, this irish guy i go like uh, how in the hell did you sneak into the into the british consulate over the british uh, constables over here being from ireland he goes they don't know so, you know that was that was bs but so, so it, was, it was interesting ireland was interesting because i had, I had studied all the songs uh-huh. read lots of literature and things so i said okay this time because one, one of the things i would do is go out and interview the citizenry wherever it was that i was, I was studying i said so i'm going to a country who appears that the majority of their population are for the IRA, which is a terrorist organization. How, I wonder how they deal with that. So I get to Ireland, and we're at the, the academy, and I'm talking to these, the people, and I said, how are, how are you supported by the police, by the, by the people? They said, oh, yeah, they're back us all the way. Oh, yeah. I said, well, what about the IRA? That's when I found out that the IRA backings in the Republic of Ireland is minuscule very very few people back the ira in the in the populace of uh, of ireland and can you imagine in 1921 being a constable in ireland and on this day you're carrying guns you're thumping on people and stuff like that this day you have no guns this is now the republic of ireland and now you're going to police without all of your equipment that you had over here we can thump on people now you're not going to do that anymore I thought that would be, that would be terrifying. And they did, yeah. they lost all, they lost a lot of their constables uh, when that happened. But can you imagine just, just from one day to the next, just a click. And all of a sudden you're a whole different police officer that, uh, that had to be, had to be scary. Imagine but, so. they, yeah. The detectives there at least carried guns. Uh, that's, that's the people who get the fire. The, uh, well, in fact, all of them get firearms training. I had a sergeant and a constable from London come over to visit the sergeant the, the constable was certified that if he needed a gun, if you go up two clicks above his station commander, he could get permission to run to the station, open the safe and get a, get a gun and go back out. So he, he, he had some firearm training. So his wife, who's a sergeant, they come over, she had never touched a gun before. So we have her out on the range shooting an m60 machine gun, you know, MP fives. And she's she's laughing. She's she's shooting a built belt fed machine gun. And, and she's laughing so much she buried the, the muzzle uh, into the dirt. But luckily, it was a flash suppressor, So it didn't do any damage to the gun. But um, you know, because people in England, unless you're specifically trained, and she had pictures of that up on her cubicle and special branch comes by and wants to know if that's her she says yes because at that time she was she was a young sergeant she was probably probably 30 31 32 years old good looking and they they said is that you you were actually shooting those guns and things she says oh yes it was it was fun they were looking for somebody to travel with princess diana and they wanted a female that they could mm-hmm. You know that could could handle a firearm, and she couldn't because she had a daughter. She couldn't she couldn't do the the action because she couldn't leave her daughter. Yeah. So and she'd be traveling a lot. So you you're frozen again. So I will continue. It's just oh, uh, all right. Oh, you oh, you yeah. back? We're, okay. Yeah, we
0: froze up there for a second.
1: Yeah. I thought maybe you're having a seizure or something. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I know. Uh,
0: it appears that not only is my power a little wonky tonight, my internet connections a little. A little
1: okay. Wonky. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end anyway. <laughs> uh, I put down there Chris Karachi and Matt Sieber. Mm-hmm. During the 90s, Rich G brought in some strange people. The absolute strangest was Chris Karachi. He was an ex-SEAL, just the strangest individual I'd ever met. And staff mostly ignored him. You know, we were told that, okay, yeah, he's, he's your boss, but, but he's left us alone most of the time. But, uh, you know, his daily, his daily, his everyday carry was a two-shot derringer on the belt buckle. That was, that was his complete carry because he was, he was so badass, I guess. We only carried that, but, but uh, he was just a strange duck. Then Matt Siebert was there. uh, Very dignified looking gentleman. And, Nobody in staff could tell me who he was or what he did, but he's teaching classes up in Prescott. And he says that he was at a, at one time, either operations officer or, or some other big title at gun And I'm sure he was, I'm sure that Rich G gave him a title, a big title, and probably didn't pay him very much. Uh, so his, his pay really was probably the title. But uh, so those are the couple of names that keep popping up about gunsight that you know to, yeah. well they taught at gunsight well Karachi never taught gunsight doctrine that I that I'm aware of um, he did a lot of slashing with knives and things with the classes and I thought it was rather embarrassing myself it was not something that was not something to look back on for sure and rescued by Buzz Mills we're done well tell about the rescue part well the rescue was was when buzz uh bought everything there september and and was over uh toasting with with jeff so when he came in and brought jeff back into the master classes uh things started happening uh because we had we had the funding and Mm -hmm. uh we had you know people like ed head uh and uh um who else? Ed, Head. and we had we had regular staff take over the the operations part of it, which was really great because they they knew, and these were old staff. They were staff that they were with Jeff, so they knew the histories. They knew mm-hmm. they knew the you know everything that happened at Gunsight. So so having them in charge really was great because now you knew that you could go and talk and talk the same language to whomever it was that you're you're working for and getting things done so uh so since 2000 and it's just grown and grown uh that's uh i i have taught there since 85 but uh we have come so much further from jeff's even jeff's idea of of how great it could be with the classes that we have or yet we have so many people that have so many true expertise you know in knife fighting um the uh, medical aspects of, of saving people's lives uh church uh security uh-huh. and those guys have and they have the the staff i i myself and the phd from from emory riddle damn i need to get his name back in my head but remember the only good thing about getting old is you have an excuse for everything. Okay, so, so anyway, so we developed the, we developed the instructor development program together and he brought in the, he brought in the egghead stuff and I brought in the, mm-hmm. the stuff that Jeff taught me as far as teaching people how to, how to do what we do. So, and I think it's a, I think it's a good program, but it changes every class because I learn more things. Uh, so, so I have to give them a complete, you know, all new PowerPoints, all new documentation and things every time we teach the class, because invariably I've changed something. And for liability purposes, they need to have all of that data on online. So I, I give them all the data as we go. And I got permission to do like my my uh, middle conditioning lecture, which goes in, in a lot more depth. Uh, my middle conditioning lecture at the instructor level. Is in much more depth than what we normally do in a 250. But I got permission from from Dave uh, to use my mental conditioning from the instructor class, and so I do that. And I've I've gotten really good comments on that. So, so I keep changing. If I don't if I don't change any, then I'm I'm done. I'm going to stop.
0: The instructor development class is usually done in October, correct?
1: Yes, it is. It's it's right after just uh, it's two weeks after the gas gas match which is you know the gunside lumini shoe mm-hmm. yeah and it's yeah it's been been held there each time and what really surprised me about that class was I thought these were going to be people that have been to gunsight
0: mm-hmm.
1: that wanted to know how how and why we do what we do at gun site so I thought I could do this so uh, when they came in that first class I think we only had two people and one of those being, being uh, uh, Marty Hayes that had been the gun site. The other people hadn't been the gun site. They were, they were people that were going off to teach on, on their own program, but they wanted a, an instructor certification and they thought an instructor certification from gunsight would be a good one. So, uh, and that's why I changed uh, we, a we lot. Froze
0: up right, we froze okay. up right after you said Marty Hayes.
1: Oh, uh, this class that Marty Hayes was in. And because of the fact that many of those people had never been to Gunsight. I changed quite a bit from the, the critique that Marty gave me and from realizing that these are not just gunsight people, I need to go into more depth as to why we do some of these things that would have been explained to them in a 250 class. Uh-huh. So, so I've incorporated that into the, into the instruction class now. So we, we spend a lot of time on, on theory of learning. You know, one of your uh, recent podcasts, you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of Mm-hmm. of uh, learning of of uh needs, of, uh, needs yes yeah. people don't realize how that relates directly to the instructor yeah. and you don't don't realize that yeah you got to take care of these things here and then you get up to the top there and that's the danger zone if you screw up up in that area if you embarrass somebody or something you have lost them forever mm-hmm. and you know so we spent some time on on maslow so talking about. We have to we have to be aware of these things that these people need, and we have to be aware of the dangers if you cross it over here in the top two levels of this of this pyramid, your ass is grass you're not you're gonna lose those people forever in fact, they will hate you forever so you've got to be very careful you've gotta you gotta pick the person you're gonna make you know that you're gonna joke with very carefully to add some humor to the class but at the same time make sure that person isn't getting embarrassed or, or otherwise or is offended by what you're doing. And I've seen instructors do that. And it's, it's not a, it's not a good thing to see. So, so we, we go into a lot of that, you know, the theory of learning, you know, the concepts of learning, you know, you know from, from memorization to conceptualization, uh, we go through those things, but then we do a lot of running the line, uh, talking about, about commands, how you do the, how, you know, you got to make sure, you know, give them a preparatory, then give them an execute. Do not just go straight in. And here's the last one. Here's the one I found in the last class. So I get one of them up there to run the line, and his signal to fire is, gun! I went, <laughs> stop right there. No, we never use gun, knife, or anything <laughs> like that as, a, as an execution for, for firing, because if you're with a group of people, and somebody finds a gun you need to announce that and we don't want people shooting this guy just because you found a gun on him right. so so and he goes well i never heard that before so i don't know how how prevalent that is out in the in the business but that's shocked the heck out of me when they, they use gun as a as an execute for a firing so but it's so we do a lot of that and we critique everyone They, you're on the you're on the spot you're going to do this you're going to present this they're going to present it. They're going to turn around, face the berm. They're going to give us, I'm going to get evaluation from the rest of the class, turn them around. Then we start talking about what they did well, what they, what they could work on and, and why uh, type thing. So, so lots and lots of critiquing for them and for, and for us, uh, we get critiqued also. So it's, it's a, I think it's a good class. I, of course it is. Of course I think it's a good class. I, I present it. So it's, <laughs> But uh, it's an accumulation of, of a lot of things that I've learned over a whole lot of years. So, in, in teaching people, so. Um,
0: yeah, I, I was sitting here as you were talking about the dangers on there at the top of Maslow, and I've been on both ends of that equation where uh, I, I did something bad as an instructor and lost a student. And then I've been on it as a student, where like, I will never set foot on in a classroom with that guy again. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, because no. you're, I mean, you're dealing with their core. You're dealing with mm-hmm. the core of the individual, their self-esteem. Uh, and once you violate that, you violate their self-esteem, you're done. Yep. You might as well pack your bags and go. They are not going to listen to anything you have to say after that. Yep. You, you, know, never, you yeah. never get them back, no matter yep. what. I, I give them the examples that I've run into. You know, at the academy, we get a new firearm destructor in. I'm in one bay. They're in the next bay. and I hear this. Cadet, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, just... Mm-hmm. going like sorry but Inter- no cancel you know bring that guy in and say look if this if this cadet is so worried about how you're going to yell at him or belittle him or anything like that he's never going to learn anything from you you're there to help him develop his skills so i don't want any more of this uh, you know gi joe stuff yelling at them and so forth these are your clients. You are there. You're working for them. So you don't be yelling at your bosses, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Now, I had, had one up at gun site, had a, had a new instructor, and he was uh, a college student at the time, and his mother was a, a good friend of Jeff's. So I have got him in the class, and I had a person with some trigger problems. So I asked him to go off to the side here and work with this, this, uh, this client here and work on that trigger control. So he goes, okay. So he's over there I'm talking to the rest of the class. We're, we're talking about something and they're over there doing their thing. And all of a sudden they hear, no, like this. And he grabs the client's gun and goes, clang, clang, clang. And then gives it back to the client. Say, do it like that. It's like, okay, come on over and let's talk about that. You know, so that's not how you teach either. Okay. Well, yeah. my screen over here is black. So I don't know what's yeah, going we've on. lost
0: We've lost your camera. If you look down at your bottom left. See if there's a camera okay. icon that says stop video it's, or start. I audio. have enough cancel bottom left on your screen. Uh, you I now. do have it. Yeah,
1: well, bottom left.
0: Yeah, you're back on now. I got you back okay. on camera now.
1: Yeah, okay. Do we need to redo anything or they just nah, get black it can't? Three?
0: It recorded all
1: your audio. Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm new to this stuff. Yep, this is. What it was that came up wanted me to enter a password for one of my email addresses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like,
0: Well, you know, here's the thing though, is if we'd have been trying to do this back when gunslight was founded, we'd be doing this podcast by letter (laughs) (laughs) versus, uh, you know, sitting here both looking at each other like it's on star Trek across the country. Right. Uh, you know, I was telling somebody today that growing up, in the county where i live we have a lake and the lake had its own phone exchange and it was long distance to call people who had a lake area phone number even though you were in the same county and that's something that you just don't even people don't even fathom today with cell phones
1: if i wanted to call from glendale to scottsdale it was a long distance call Mm -hmm. of course i go back to when the phone rang you had to count the rings because we were on a party line So, you know, so if you had three shorts, then you got the phone and then tell everybody else to get off. you got it. So that's, that's old. You aren't, you you aren't that old.
0: I actually, yes, I am. Really, Uh, We did not have a party line, but my three cousins that lived well, my great uncle and his two children. Adult children lived across the road from us. Three separate households. They were all on a party line, and then uh, my cousins that live up the road from us, they were on a party line. And so we didn't we didn't have it in our house, but I'm familiar with it from being in theirs. Uh, matter of no. fact, back then, um, you didn't even have to dial like the full exchange. Like the, it was the area code was four hundred four, then all the local numbers started with four eight five. Yeah. And then you had the last four digits, you could just dial five yeah, in the last four digits. And I remember <laughs> when they started making us do the full 485, and everybody being, why, why do we have to do all this now? <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah. And now you gotta dial everything. But of course, now you just tell Siri, you know, to, to take care of you
0: yeah well they changed they changed that area code when you know cell phones and metro atlanta started really is what it was metro atlanta started getting so much bigger and using up so many phone numbers we had to get a new area code so because we went from 404 to 706 back then and it used to be all of georgia was either 404 or 912 and now it's like six or seven different area codes
1: yep yeah same here in arizona in fact, they had a posting just on Facebook said Arizona. Okay, if you have a six hundred two, that meant you, you've been here for a long time. And then it went mm-hmm. to you know nine two eight. That was something else. But when you get down to no, when you got down to nine two eight, it was was Howdy there or something like those lines because that that's the that's the outer counties of of Arizona. So that's uh, hey, hey, we hey. we we have a whole fourteen. Now, 15 counties now we had 14 now we have 15 counties in, in arizona and i go back east some places and it's like holy crapola 15 minutes and you're in another county we have 159
0: counties in georgia
1: oh wow yeah the only oh, state wow. that has
0: more than us is texas and that's due to its size because <laughs> under our under our original well not our original constitution but one of our previous constitutions on the state level, we had what was called the county unit system, which was basically an electoral college to elect the governor. And any time Metro Atlanta got to be too popular or too populous and was inserting influence, the legislature would divide the rural counties so that it would keep the governor from, from being elected from Metro Atlanta. They all claim it's from some thing about horse and buggy days and being able to get to the county seat today, and it was all over over electing the governor and we can't do away with these counties now because they are so so instrumental to the football rivalries that, that we can, oh, really? uh, yeah we can't do away with these two counties because they're football rivals <laughs> We can't consolidate them so um our constitution now caps the number of counties at 159 so if you're going to create something else you'd have to consolidate to or amend the constitution but uh, one last uh old thing when i was a little boy we didn't have a a, like a street address like everybody thinks of now we were on rural route three yep and you had a box number but it wasn't like a house number that identified where your house was it wasn't like sequential and my grandmother was was a number and my father put a house right next to her and we became her house number with the letter a attached to it Mm -hmm because yep. we were on that same piece of property and then when the e911 stuff came in, into being they made everybody have an individual house number and i remember one old guy that refused and to <laughs> his dying day he still did his rural route on his yeah we day?
1: i grew up i grew up with a with a route number that was mm-hmm. it in fact we had our road our main highway by where i i was raised is now called 75th avenue because Mm -hmm. it all fits in with city of Phoenix and it has to spread out. But we always called it just lateral 20. We we lived on lateral 20 because every mile was a lateral for the irrigation uh, laterals in order for the farms. Mm -hmm. And so we lived on lateral 20 and rural route box 270 was, was our address. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So now it's of course all too many people. Too uh, many people.
0: Yep. It's just, time marches on and changes everything.
1: Yes, it does.
0: Uh, well, sir, any, any closing thoughts before we,
1: we shut it down tonight? No, I think I've beat it around enough by now. It's, I just wanted to get something out there on some of the things. You know, people seem to have an interest in gunsight. So if they're interested, they should know about some of the behind the scenes things mm-hmm. that, that have happened out there. So, and remember, I'm not, taking, I'm not speaking for gunsight. Uh, this is just people, either I witnessed people told me or whatever. So, but, uh, a great, great group of people, you know, and, and if people don't realize it, when well, we call it the gunside family, it really, it really is. I'm telling you, it's the, it is the most family feeling location I've been at. It's, you know, when we have gas, you know, you have 225 shooters come in mm-hmm. and with all of their spouses and things like that. And it's just one big party. It really is just you gotta come to gas. You should oh, I'll I'll have
0: a yeah, You, that should, one you should. My my only trip to gun sight has been for a 260 shotgun. Yep. Uh, I would like to do a 250 pistol and the instructor development course that you teach, but you know, Arizona is such a hard trip for me to get to. Um I can fly, but then how do I get all my gear out there? And so that that becomes well, you borrow getting, it from me. Well, there you go. Getting the ammo <laughs> is the hardest part
1: now. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah but see, yeah. Gunsight sells their ammo to the sure. student packages yeah. for less than you can get at the at the store. Yeah. Uh, they don't they don't gouge they don't gouge the students for their ammo, yeah. uh, which I'm really proud of because you know during that time when, when when they won't they wouldn't sell it to us they wouldn't sell it to the instructors <laughs> at, at the student price. But they finally relented and say, okay, you can buy one box of ammo. So every time <laughs> I go up. Teach a class. I buy one box of ammo, just just so that I've got it. It's, uh, yeah. But they, it's that that really amazed me that that uh, they said no, we're not gonna we're not gonna raise our prices. This is what we paid for it. This is our normal profit margin that we need, and that's what we're gonna sell it for. So it's yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an ethical organization. It really is, and. And Ken uh, Ken Campbell makes it that way, he really does. He's yeah, just, he's just the, a good guy.
0: Yeah, the um, you know they do the 250 course at the Royal Range in Nashville, which is only a five-hour drive for me. And I, I thought about going up there and doing that, but I think you know if I'm going to do gun sight, I need
1: to go with gun sight. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, because the houses and the washes, it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And I've and I've been so it wouldn't be like I was missing out on it completely, right. but um i, I understand I, yeah I, 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 if i want to take the gun sight 250 pistol i want to go to gun sight and do yep. it even though financially it would be much easier to do it in nashville uh cuz you know cut out multiple hotel nights in a hotel i can drive to it yep. in less, in less than a day and uh, but you know it's all about time and,
1: and we have we couple... have instructors that live on the east coast that, that drive out mm-hmm. of yeah and it's if you like to drive, you know, that with the new, I, I got me this uh, 2021 SUV, you know, with the radar control, mm-hmm. cruise control. Yeah. My God, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's easy. I drove out for the 260 shotgun.
0: And, um, cause I was actually going to teach a class on the way back to defray the cost of going and we didn't get oh, any yeah. status for the class. And then I had something family that I had to get home for in a hurry as well. And, um, but it was, uh. I loved the trip, that trip. I don't know that I would like to keep doing it constantly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at least not like got to get there now and got to get home. If I could spend more time sightseeing along the way, uh, it would be effort. And I got rained on all the way home. So there was no point stopping and seeing anything because it was pouring down rain.
1: Yeah, we have so, we uh, have an instructor. that was an instructor at, at uh, Glencoe for years. And he he would mm-hmm. drive out from Glencoe. Now I think he lives in Pennsylvania now and he drives out from there. Yeah that's yeah
0: yeah it's a pretty good haul i left i'm northeast georgia and in the athens area and i drove all the way to fort smith arkansas the first day and then i stopped in uh santa rosa new mexico the second night and then drove on in on sunday and then coming back um i left after class on wednesday and went and spent the night in in uh, flagstaff and so that gave me a jump start getting back the next day. Yep. I did. I did divert and see the Chisholm Trail Museum in Oklahoma <laughs> on the way home. And so uh, that added a little bit of time to the trip. But. Well, good. Yep. Well, Sarah, as always, I enjoy talking with you, and I've enjoyed the uh, the getting the history of gun sight. And hopefully, this will prompt some other people who want to document some stories that they have. And yeah, or out.
1: or. But, say I'm wrong I don't care you know this is this is what I know okay great Uh, thank you much Uh,
0: but hopefully it'll it'll prompt some people who have some other stories they'd like to tell because I really want the show to be a repository for stuff like that and uh, uh, to the audience we know that your
1: most important asset is your time and so thank you for spending it with us